Hello and welcome to this next episode in the Rerouted podcast series. Uh, we are joined by Alice Vincent, uh, who Becky, you introduced me to. You started reading Alice's books last year, I want to say. Yeah, last year I read the brilliant Why Women Grow, which is Alice's, I believe, second book. She had Rootbound that came out in 2020. Um, but I came to know Alice's work through Why Women Grow, which is this really nourishing and profound and empowering book on uh, soil sisterhood and survival. Um, Alice tells the stories of brilliant women um, across the UK and beyond who have found connection to nature through gardening and tells the story of how gardening has helped them and nourished them and transformed them in ways that they perhaps wouldn't have expected when they first turned to the land. Well, I really enjoyed reading the book, so we really hope you enjoyed this episode. So, Alice, it's so lovely to meet you, and we are so happy to have you on the podcast. Um, I have to say, I came completely fresh and new to your work, to your writing, um, and it has been such a pleasure to be reading uh, your, your work recently. Um, I've been immersed in why women grow. Um, and I I was trying to figure out what it was I was enjoying so much about it. And I think one of the things that really struck me was the sense that you somehow created this community of women that I felt I wanted to know, that I wanted to be friends <laughs> with, I wanted to spend time with. Um, I, there was somebody you talked about, I think she preferred to dig deep, not talk small, which mm. I thought was just amazing. Uh, it must have been just an incredible experience for you to go meet all these incredible women. Yeah, it was amazing. And thank you for such a warm introduction. Um, and I love that you've got that sense from the book because it was one of the best parts of working on the whole thing was meeting these women. I mean, it was entirely selfishly driven. No one said, I'll go and do this project, right? It was something that I embarked upon without really having any understanding of what it could be. I just wanted to, I wanted to find out why people gardened. Well, that's what I thought I wanted to find out. Actually, I had a whole line of inquiry that was much deeper and much more personal and um, that I needed to go through that process of interviewing, you know, several dozen strangers in their growing spaces who didn't know who I was um, or why. And I didn't really know why I was doing it. But everyone was so unbelievably generous. And that experience was wildly humbling. You know, I sort of, I would turn up and think, oh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, resistance or we're going to talk a bit about maybe grief um, or political protests or creativity. And actually you'd be handed these incredibly personal stories um, very, very generously and and then I'd go home again and be like, okay, <laughs> okay, I've got to hold this and I've got to tell this and I've got to uphold this and I have got to do my very best by these remarkable women and these remarkable stories. And um, I, it, it, it felt like a gift a lot of the time. I mean, I, I felt it's interesting you say that because when I was reading it, 
I felt that just the absolute raw emotion of some of the stories that the women tell you, it left me wondering as you were traveling home and you obviously had some, you know, long, cold journeys home. Yeah, yeah. I, I wondered what that felt like, just that it, it must have felt an enormous responsibility, I felt. Yes, huge. It was one of my greatest fears with bringing the book out and in the process of writing it that I mean normally when you're writing a book you have various fears like oh no one will want to read this or oh it's not going to work and I'm working on a manuscript at the moment and I'm like where is this how is this going to come together but my greatest fear with writing Why Women Grow was that I wouldn't do right by these narratives and there were various publishing things that we put in place that were quite unusual for a non-fiction book uh, was essentially to make sure that everyone who was written about was happy with how they were written about and happy with how their stories were told because there was no way on hell that I was going to try and write a feminist book that ultimately didn't do the right thing by these people who had just been so generous I, I didn't know who I was and they let me in and we shared things and I think that speaks a lot to the intimacy of gardens as well and growing spaces, that actually these spaces can be real spaces of comfort and safety and intimacy in a way that we haven't maybe thought about before. And you share a lot about yourself. I mean, you put a huge amount of yourself out there, which yeah. again is, I think, so much of why the book is amazing to read. But that that's a huge journey for you to go on, I imagine. Yeah, a lot of it comes out in the writing. So one of the funny things about being a writer who writes about your own life is that you frequent, there's um, a kind of reciprocity with the page that you maybe can't access as a person. So it takes a long time to get to know me as a person for me to necessarily tell things that I would happily put on a page and then publish to like thousands of people that that's okay for me but um a lot of it came out in the writing so when I went and did these conversations as an interviewer I tried to take up as little space as possible so I would sort of really I had one interview and I think I wrote in the book it was with a woman called Caroline fascinating woman fantastic life force and um I basically didn't ask a question at all uh she just she just went and I love interviews like that. I love the, that level of storytelling. You know, it's really far removed from my journalistic background, but it it allows things to grow. I, I suppose I gave people the space. But in answer to your question, yeah, making those journeys home was a unique experience. There were definitely interviews I went and I did and I came home afterwards and I was like, oh, that was a lovely conversation, but what have I, what can I do with that? You know, um, what who am I to make sense of what I've just heard? And then there were others which I was just completely blindsided by what I had heard that I just was not expecting. And often it would take months to process a lot of it and make it into a sort of comprehensive whole to take something that we could all maybe learn from or recognise ourselves in. And did gardening help during that process of cementing those ideas and sort of reflecting on those conversations did you find yourself so even more immersed sort of in your garden as a way of processing those things yeah so two things were going on 
to the background of the research. Uh, one and then and the kind of the big one. One was sort of the the pandemic, so that was happening, um, which I think explains a lot of the sense of isolation and the drive to go and connect with people which is a sort of propulsion through the book like I would not have gone and sought out all of these women if I didn't feel cut off in some way but also the other thing was that I was gaining at I was leaving the home where I had a balcony which was my own space very much hard fought for and I was moving into a shared home with the man who I now married and had a child with and we were gaining a garden and he doesn't garden and he's not even that asked about the garden. So this was a new space for me, but also for a gardener, this was a, the first time I was getting access to land in that way. So running alongside the narratives of meeting all of these women and working out what point in womanhood I am being, which is a clumsy sentence, but essentially I didn't know what kind of woman I was going to be the pandemic had kind of cut my girlhood off and then suddenly everyone was growing up really fast and I didn't know whether I wanted to have children if I wanted to get married what I was doing moving in with a man which if you've read my previous book will know that didn't end very well for me um and I I was questioning all of those and I was making a garden for the first time and I didn't really know how to do that and I also felt that was quite a present and exposing position because by this point I had gained some work and reputation as a garden writer. So as a garden writer with a garden for the first time, and I think the garden, well, I know that the garden helped to teach me how to be and how to exist and what to accept about myself and what to let go and what to grow as much as these conversations with these women. But I would hear snapshots of what they were talking about and I would see parts of their garden come through in what I was making in the garden myself as well. I would sort of be out composting and I'd hear a snapshot back of a conversation I'd had. So yeah, it all grew together. The garden grew, the conversations informed that, both of them informed my thinking um, more broadly. I mean, a recurrent theme through through the book is this idea, I suppose, of the, the different stages of womanhood, which is really fascinating. I think you say at one point that you felt like you didn't have a manual for the stage you were at, which I think is going to resonate with whatever stage you're at, really. I think, you know, it's like, there are no manuals out there. <laughs> and I mean, I think for, for, for Becky and I, it's really interesting because, I mean, we, you know, women making this podcast, we, be, you know, we worked together, we became really great friends. But, you know, we're 30 years age difference between us. It's amazing. So we 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 really and and every time we have a conversation i feel that we we have these slightly different lenses from the world and we're constantly learning from each other but i found that so fascinating about the book that the, the many different women that you talk to in the different stages of life and i think there was one garden that was it the artemis garden i want to say that kind yes. of represented yeah, yeah. the different yeah, yeah. stages of a woman's life which i just thought was so beautiful and so inspirational it is a room. That's Annie McIntyre's garden. So Anne McIntyre, Annie, to some people who know her, um, is an Ayurvedic practitioner and a herbalist and um, a remarkable human and one of the most passionate autodidacts I have ever met. And she sort of left home at 16 um, to travel to India. And this was in the 70s. Uh, she is 70 now. She's still teaching. She's still gardening. The Artemis Garden is unbelievable it's one of the I feel so honored to have experienced it and it is an experience rather than a 
um, are witnessing. But yeah, I think that with that sense, number one, I love that you have an intergenerational friendship. That was something that the research process of this book gave me. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. But also, I I think you're right. Like, I have only known the, the kind of, I feel like I'm right at the beginning of my womanhood still. Um, and I'm in my mid 30s. But I, that was another sense of that I had with writing the book it was one of great naivety. You know, I'm sitting here and being like, oh, should I have a child? Oh, should I get married? You know, like, I'm sure in 10, 15 years time, things will seem far more complicated than that. And there's, as women age, there's even less, you know, conversation and even more invisibilization of the ways that we have to live. So it's not going anywhere. That cluelessness isn't going anywhere. But I do think I sought out other narratives on womanhood because I didn't feel like I'd been shown them because we're not allowed to take up space with the lives that we want to live or the lives that we have lived. There's a show on at the moment at the Tate Britain called Women in Revolt. And one of the exhibits is um, from the 80s and an artists interviewed um, women who worked in factories and got them to detail, break down their days into like their duties and their responsibilities and the hours they worked around their domestic work. And it was horrifying to see what they did, but it was more horrifying to see that our lives haven't changed that much. I'm a middle-class writer. I have a really supportive husband. I have childcare. It wasn't that different. And I think that just shows how few of our narratives and our stories are, are upheld. We, we, we don't take up as much space and we occupy so much. And you come back to, I think, a lot in the book, which I think is one of the strengths about your your own recognition of your privilege uh, as a woman in your situation. And, and many of the women you speak with are not so privileged and you tell their stories. And I think that that's incredibly important. And, you know, the, the book is political. It's 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 saying very important things about the different situations that women find themselves in. Thank you. Yeah, that was really important to me. I mean, I'm like, it's applied to a certain extent in Rootbound as well, which was sort of a little sister to Why Women Grow, I suppose. Um, which is, yeah, I mean, I I would be naive to think that I was not massively fortunate in having access to land and having um, a supportive partner in having stable relationships and having an education. And I want, I didn't, when I was doing some research into what stories of women gardening had been represented, and this is a kind of common, if there is a criticism against the book, it's that, you know, women's stories, there are loads of women gardeners. Look at Gertrude Jekyll, look at Sarah Raven. And I'm like, yeah, they were amazing. The fact that you can name sub five shows that, you know, there is, <laughs> and they're of a certain kind of demographic suggests that there are millions of women who have been doing this silently with zero recognition for centuries and we have never decided to do anything about it and uh, it was very important to me to represent women from as many demographics um, as possible and I don't think I succeed you know there's there's there are the reason why the book has spawned a podcast the reason why people like you ask me onto your podcast the reason why I'm doing a lot of events is because people 
there are still more stories to tell. There are so many stories to tell. And every time I go to a book signing, people come up and they'll say, my grandmother did this or my aunt did this. You know, we are, we carry these stories with us. And um, there definitely needs to be more space for it. But yes, of course, it's political. It's a book about women. It's a book about gardens. Both of them are inherently political things, even if we try to pretend otherwise. Mm, and that's something that really jumped out to me is that when I was I was listening to your audio audio book when I was walking into uni this morning, I was like, I just need to like re-familiarise myself because I read it for the first time last year. And I was like, I really want to speak to my granny now about gardening. And I always remember like I'd, I'd never made that connection before. And last week we sat down with one of Nikki's friends who's an amazing midwife and we spoke to her all about wild swimming it was this fantastic conversation and we came away from it afterwards and being like okay we need to speak to more people we know as well as sort of speaking to like amazing people like you of being like we need that like complimentary um sort of style of interview and I was like I need to speak to granny about this and she's this 91 year old woman and she has always had this garden and it's always been beautifully well kept and it's always something that I really remember from my childhood and I was speaking to her a few weeks ago and she's yes yeah, she's 91 now my granddad's not very well and she was talking about the fact that the garden is starting to sort of she's kind of losing her grip on it and things are sort of becoming overgrown and it's this sort of like new stage of her gardening life and it was so powerful listening to you speak uh, in your audiobook about it and sort of getting my perspective on it was this sort of real yeah as we talked about this intergenerational connection with with land but also being prepared to let it go in certain moments and be like it doesn't have to be this perfect garden all the time and I think that's what I remember seeing in some of your sort of Instagram posts when you'd still when you'd first had your baby was sort of how the garden was changing and how you were sort of having to 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 think about that in a different way um I just wondered sort of how your relationship with your garden has changed since you became a mother, given that you, so much of what you talk about in the book is about sort of motherhood or lack thereof. Yeah, thank you. It's such a it's a good question because, uh, or best laid plans, isn't it? I, I had hoped that kind of the building I'm sitting in now is essentially a shed where I write, um, which I wanted to create before the baby was born because the baby is now sleeping in the room where I used to write. And... Um, I thought, oh, you know, we'll landscape the garden and we'll get all of the, the plugs in in autumn and we'll get it established and then the baby will come and it will be it will be growing and it'll be gorgeous and it'll be ready to go. And due to very boring planning permission reasons, that did not happen. And we ended up landscaping the garden when the baby was three weeks old. And that meant that everything I'd poured into it um, was I just stood at the window the baby strapped to me and watched as two very burly men dug up the entirety of the garden into this like four ton pile of earth and like felled a tree and and as a result the garden is now younger than the baby is um but they're kind of weird twins right like they were both newborn at the same time and I planted a lot of things that will bloom in collision with his birthday and um it's interesting I it's I think it's funny it worked out like that because it means that I'm sort of watching them grow in tandem and everything has been very very new but with regards to gardening more generally I mean god I just I I, I was also just writing about this for a column I, I was filing the second that I before I came onto the podcast and I have learned to let go exactly as you said from listening to the book um 
it can't all happen. So in very practical things, I've stripped down my plant palette. I've made a space to sit. And actually we did more sitting in the garden over the last spring than we have done in years because there wasn't anywhere to sit. I have made more lawn, but also bigger flower beds. I've put in a tree. I've kind of given myself that permission to let things grow. I've let go of a lot of the perfectionism. Um, and I'm really, really grateful for everything that does turn up with such negligence, frankly. It, it, it is, it's, it's learning to find its own space for wrong or right. Yeah, I mean, so much of that I relate to. I was, um, so I, I, I have two children and um, who, who are pretty grown up, I said children grown up now, um, but I was given by a friend a, a rose bush the year that my son was born. And every year in June, round about his birthday, um, it flowers. And it was strange because it's been a part of all of our lives all these years. But it was only really when I'm reading your book that it, it just brought home to me what that was doing for us, that there was this just real absolute connectivity between what was happening in the garden. And, like you know, like every year... I um I send him a picture and say, oh, your rose is blooming. <laughs> um, and it's just like this little annual thing. But then I, I look back at pictures the other day. I was going through a whole load of old pictures. And I look back at pictures of the garden. And I've been in the house I live in a really long time. And there's a tree right in the middle of the garden that now is enormous. But, you know, 20, 25 years ago was was kind of like a sapling. Um, and it's just that sense yeah. of constant evolution. You know, the garden's been somewhere where the kids played and, you know, there are areas that have just constantly evolved because it, it needs to do different things for us. You know, we now we now have a sitting yeah. area, which used to be a play area. Um, but that feeling of it in yeah. constant evolution, the constant seasonal change, I'm very much tied to my family life. It, it's really made me think about that yeah. in a way that I hadn't really thought about that in the same way. I, it was one of the things that when I was first started the research for the book, I that was the the kind of the neat linear causal relationship that I expected. None of the stories were that neat, and yet we can see ourselves in so much of the gardens. And I found, I would also like to add um, that forty percent, roughly, of the women who were written about in the book and maybe in the research in general, were renting. So um, they didn't have primary access to gardens that they owned. And also probably about the same percentage um, may have had access to gardens, but would choose other spaces, allotments or parks or something. As a, My specification was a green space. So when not everyone had a garden, when people had been there for a long time, whether they were rented or borrowed or, or whatever, you could, I loved going there because you could always see a sort of, they acted like a weird horticultural mirror to that person. I sort of learned to read a sense of someone's personality through their garden and how it looked, but also how they spoke about their garden. So without discussion, nearly every interview would begin with a sort of impromptu tour around the garden. and everyone but one person apologized for the state of the growing space that we were in which is something I do whenever yeah. anyone turns up in my garden yeah <laughs> absolutely. absolutely there is never never a point ever when I'm like open the back door and I'm like here take a seat I'm just like oh god I'm so sorry yeah. I'm so sorry for this garden <laughs> it's like oh it's a terrible mess which is don't awful. look at that bit you know yeah, yeah. Like, oh god I haven't <laughs> cleared this up or whatever it's awful but yeah 
everyone but one apologized for them but also the bits where I found it most beautiful where were things like where there was play equipment where there was a favorite chair or where there was an assertion that had gone wild all the bits of like the equivalent of when you go into someone's house and you see a bit of their life where you see the photos on the fridge or you see the burnt down candle in the fireplace the imperfect bits were that was always my favorite bits of anyone's garden because that's where you see how people live in it and that's the wonderful thing about nature that we're only really just starting to sort of grasp is that it's supposed to be messy and when people talk about sort of pulling up weeds and like no they're they're plants and this is their sort of carriers of biodiversity and it's incredible from sort of a, a climactic perspective but also yeah exactly they are it's a way of the garden telling its story it's a way of the person who looks after that garden who nurtures that garden telling their own story and I remember Nikki when I came to your house for the first time last week, but you'd spoken about it lots of times before and you said, oh, I have this wild garden. And I was like, this makes complete sense because it, it, your garden and your home felt like you. And, and that is exactly as you were saying, the message that comes through so much in the story is that we need to let go of this sort of desire to sort of manicure everything and make it look completely perfect because that's not what life is. And actually when you do let go of those things, you connect with nature and you connect with other people on a more sort of profound level. I mean, for me, my 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 wild garden comes a little bit through that feeling of, I've been really lucky to live here a long time, but I have to say it's, I mean, I think you talk about this book, that sort of fear of gardening, that feeling of inability to grow things and to create formal structures and grow specific types of plants. You know, I, I would say, you know, I've, I've, definitely failed a lot at that and after a long time I guess I just relaxed into thinking okay I can just let nature do its thing and I kind of intervene a little bit and that works for me but you know I I I don't know it feels like I there's a feeling of I've slightly failed at more formal gardening as you know because I I've done that badly for a long time it's so interesting isn't it like I think that desire for perfection and control goes hand in hand with why wild gardening, specifically when you encounter it um, in the context of the book, which is something that women have created, is so enchanting. And for me, it was a means of understanding that as women, um, we the minute we pop out of the womb, we have expectations of what we should be and what we should look like put upon us. And so if then we can contort what beauty is and what beauty should be and what things are meant to look like, there is a huge power in that. And so that's why, you know, it's so interesting to hear both of you talk about, you know, a sense of what we would want it to look like and a sense of failing to create a formal understanding of what a garden should be. But instead, there is such power in being like, you know what, fuck it. I like it like that, and that is beautiful to me, is the akin to turning up to a fancy party and saying, I'm going to wear my glasses, or I'm not going to put high heels on, and this is fine. Like, that's what it felt like to me. And I've got, it's so funny, at the moment, my lawn is a hot mess, um, mostly mud. And I don't really like lawns, and I don't like cutting them, so I've filled it with bulbs. 
which maybe might cover up some of the mud. I don't know. But for for a man who is largely completely apathetic about everything in the garden, every time my husband, every now and then, every week or so, my husband would be like, need to do something about that lawn. Like, and then just like move on and be like, sure, you know, go and scarify it or something if you want. I don't care. Um, doesn't do anything with it. But you know, it's, do you know what I mean? I, if, I, I could freely go out there and scatter a load of something that will hold and it will grow. And I know that when I leave it to grow long, it will be fine and the baby will roll on it and it doesn't matter. But that desire to have a perfect green lawn, you know, I just, I need, I just doesn't care. Yeah, I've I've given up on all of that. Yeah, I've I'm like I've long ago realized that that's just never going to happen, and I'm fine with that now. And I absolutely loved, you know, I just let I whether they're weeds or whatever you want to call them or wildflowers, I just let it run riot. It sounds incredible, and I think that is I think it's exactly right. It's incredibly incredibly powerful as a, as a thing and but you know I, I similarly have a partner who every time he goes into the garden I'm just having to say no really don't cut anything back don't really don't I want it to be that I want it to look like that that's the idea I don't want it to be controlled yeah yeah no exactly uh I don't intend to mow the lawn now before July and honestly it just gives me a great deal of pleasure just knowing I don't have to do that for six months Alice, one of the things you talk about is like the relationship that we have with nature as this place that we go for our mental health, for solace. But you also talk about this idea that obviously, given the precarious state of nature, we can't take it for granted. That feels an important takeaway for me from the book, this idea that we we can't just have this like one way relationship with our gardens and growing in the natural world. Yeah, I mean, it's very human and very, frankly, patriarchal and colonial as well to just expect that the land and the outside world is this endless resource that we can just do what we want with and it will always be there it's um but it's how we've treated our gardens for a really long time especially in the global north and in you know western civilization is sort of ah some land we will grow some food and we will eat the food and then we will plant some more food and we'll just keep going forever um and it was also a bit of a pushback against this sense. And I, and I wrote a book like this, Rootbound did kind of have this analogy, which is that there are a number of nature memoirs coming out about, you know, in the last decade or so that presented the outside world as a means of like, you go and stand in a wood and whatever you're troubled with will be dealt with, you know, and that's not to say that it isn't true that being outside and engaging with the outside world does make things uh, feel smaller and more manageable. And it does have a scientifically, biologically calming effect on our systems. That is very much true. But I, I really wanted to trouble this notion that nature is healing. It, it's it's almost like we turn up and we think it's akin to a chemist's and we just it will do it will do some stuff for us it's like no there has to be respect there there has to be a reciprocal relationship there we also have to realize that you know there's no coincidence that we are waking up to this notion that being outside can make us feel better at a time when we are in global climate catastrophe because we're aware it's a kind of grief 
and you cannot engage with the natural world without understanding how imperiled it is um you know you need to realize how powerful it is in order to want to save it but yes we you know all the things you're saying letting your grass go long understanding that weeds are not the enemy um but also engaging on it on a deeper level you know I find I get far more satisfaction from my garden when I am actually spending time observing it when I am witnessing it when I am acknowledging that there will be slugs and the slugs will eventually feed the one missile thrush that lives in Brixton and you know we will you have to acknowledge that it's not just our space to imprint what we desire upon it and there is a huge satisfaction that comes from that it just takes a bit longer than going to B&Q and sticking some pansies in a pot you know (laughs) it's a lifelong endeavor yeah it's like an active almost immersion in nature rather than just seeing it as a sort of like, okay, this is a quick fix. I think we're so conditioned now to be like, okay, well, I will do one meditation and all my worries and sort of fears and anxieties will be cured. And I think we treat um, nature in a very similar way. We, again, we go and stand in the park for a bit and it'll go for a walk and we're like, okay, why don't I feel better? And then there almost builds this little bit of resentment of like it's not working for me I'll go and do something else and then we just end up being quite fickle about it whereas actually exactly as you're saying if you go and you immerse yourself in nature and you observe it and you respect it and you you understand that it's not just here for us it's its own sort of living breathing sort of existing um ecosystem and that's that's a really beautiful thing and I think that's what we came at this podcast thinking about we were really conscious of the fact that the climate and the environment were in a sort of perilous situation how could we make people connect with it in order to help save it and I just wondered when if there was a moment for you a bar sort of the obvious sort of headlines and stuff being like oh we're going to reach all these temperatures and things like that if there was a moment where you really found yourself being like I have a lot of respect for this this space and I and I care about it on a sort of more broad level than sort of my own personal enjoyment of it I think it's it's constant it's a constant presence and it it has been a dawning reality but it also has been I'm still right at the beginning of that journey because it you know to sit with an awareness of what the outside world is is to not only understand that we are part of it that's why I have a complicated relationship with the word nature because I think it others it. We are part of nature, we're all part of one thing. Um, but also it's uncomfortable because your growing awareness of it is also to be very aware that it's doomed. Like it is hot summers are not fun for me anymore. My climate anxiety is very, very high. It's a constant, really uncomfortable thing because it's it's difficult, as you said. Um I suppose there was a, it existed before this, definitely. The the kind of the flat that I write about right in the very introduction to the book and also in the epilogue of Rootbound, they are joined in that way, did face onto the woods. And and so that was an immense privilege to be able to just be at tree canopy level, like metres away from the trees. And I was, became very kind of addicted I suppose to being that in that proximity to living things but then on a more uh, demonstrative level I suppose the huge heat wave and 40 degree temperatures that we had in 2022 
and the summer before that that was very hot that that was what made me realize that I had to change how I gardened that's why we really landscaped the garden and the baby was an element of it but also it's like I need to do drought tolerant planting I need to do planting that can withstand flooding I need to um stop just having flower beds full of plants that don't like these conditions and continue throwing them in anyway and hoping for the best like I need to create a climate tolerant if such thing exists space where I can grow things that will benefit an ecosystem that was what did it and I guess sort of following on from that quite a lot of what you write about and I guess what you think about is is food and the relationship between growing and food and sustaining ourselves from the food that we grow yeah so that is a really spicy meatball in the sense that um I have always uh I I'm, I have grown edibles, but it's not practical for me to do so at this point in time. Like, I don't have the right kind of space. My garden is north facing um, and I don't have the time. But and the other thing is that it's a, it's a much broader issue, which is one of um, land access and land sustainability and about food culture as well. So um, which is a huge issue and there are some brilliant books about it Claire Rattanen's Unearthed is one such thing and Sarah Langford's Rooted is another very good book about farming and I and yes if you can grow your own food that is closing a system and it's very important but I do think that unless you have the kind of untold privilege of um access to land and also endless time in which to grow upon it it's very difficult to be fully sustained by your food you grow yourself all year round unless you really like turnips but um which you know some people might but yes there are other things you can do like you know we we have a riverford box for instance I tend not to I'm weaning the baby at the moment and he's not had a strawberry because they're not in season do you know what I mean it's a greater sensitivity of of knowing what to eat when um but yes there is huge power in growing your food and I did speak to food growers female food growers and there are some women doing amazing things Fern Vero comes to mind they are a collective down in Cornwall all female and um do incredible growing there are some fantastic growers out there and the Land Workers Alliance is worth checking out as well Mm, yeah we have to to reconnect to what's around us rather than assuming that exactly we can have everything all of the time and it links back to that sort of perfectionism is that we we've been conditioned and told especially as women that we have to have these sort of perfect lives and actually it's letting go of that a little bit and being like okay I only have access like if this was 50 years ago I'd only have access to this so I'm going to make the best of this and you actually end up appreciating it a lot more because you haven't got the sort of endless choice that you have with say popping to Sainsbury's and, and getting blueberries in the middle of winter. It just, it it's about reconnecting yourself to that and and sort of, for, without using the sort of bloody title of this podcast, sort of rerouting yourself to, to actually the seasonality and what's around you and, and, and what we're actually, nature is giving us. And also I think like you talk, Alice, you talk about the idea of rebellion and like gardening being in a rebellion for you. And I feel like that's really at the heart of this as women we're so used to being quite compliant about so many things and at the heart of this is this idea of you know rebelling which seems an excellent idea yeah rebelling but also just making making things on your own terms like I definitely had to 
part of the reason why there's quite a lot of soul searching in the book is because I had to make, I had to kind of come to terms with the fact that like, in some ways I really like ascribing to a typical depiction of womanhood. Like I'm in a heteronormative relationship. I like making my house look nice. I like growing flowers. I like wearing dresses with flowers on them. Like I just don't necessarily want to do it all the time. I, I think it's it's a reclamation of it and that's very much what I found you know when people say so why do women grow what did you find they want a neat answer and the closest one I can give is by saying the things that linked all of the stories were matters of control and matters of space and those are two things that women have historically and increasingly uh, actually given the the state of the reproductive rights in america and elsewhere we have to fight for with every fiber of our being space and control we do not have the same amount of as other people and so if we can make a growing space that we can define on our own terms and we can have a level of control to have it on our terms that's a very powerful thing Well, that was our conversation with Alice. We hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed taking part. Uh, I think you'll agree it turned out to be a really big conversation about so many important topics. Yeah, it moved me and inspired and empowered me in equal measure. It was so beautiful to hear Alice speaking so passionately about all of the experiences women have had with their gardens in ways that they perhaps wouldn't have expected to and it certainly left me thinking about why I turned to the land and my relationship with it um, after having that conversation. So if you would love to hear more from Alice, um, you can follow her on social media at Alice Vincent Writes and have a look at all the links in the show notes for more information. And join us next time when we're going to be talking to Leif for Sweden.